0: Hi, folks. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 6th of January 2009. For the newcomers, and there will be newcomers coming into the show, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website, and you can download as many of the talks I've given in the past as you wish, and they're all free. You can also look into AlanWattSentientSentinel.eu and find written transcripts of these talks written in the various languages of Europe, And you can download those and pass them around to your friends or read them at your leisure. You know, we are in a stage of change, as transition, as they keep calling it, the top transition. This is the century for transition where, supposedly, at the end of a hundred years, which ties in with the Hundred Years' War that Mr. Rumsfeld kept talking about, and kept wondering what it he mean it wouldn't take a hundred years to finish off the Middle East well he wasn't talking about the Middle East he was talking about the big agenda the agenda that's been planned for an awful long time and it's been brought about surreptitiously and through stealth by big foundations big non-governmental organizations coupled with the United Nations and funded by all the big eugenicists that, that ever ever existed the big foundations themselves. And we're so used to it. We're so used to their programs on television and their expert panels and so on that now that it's all out in the open that they want to change society itself and, and the, very, the very types of humans that we are, in fact. They've declared there's too many of the base types left. That's the majority, according to them. And they want to rebuild the whole, the whole planet and vastly reduce the population, and that's what all the hype is about, about sustainable development. It, it's just another cover for massive depopulation, which was always the agenda of the eugenic societies. But as I say, they're out in the open now, and they could only come out in the open in an age where the public had been so dumbed down and so used to their propaganda, never realizing that it was propaganda watched all the nature shows and gradually bit by bit we've been shown that this is how it is in nature every animal feeds on some other animal and the fittest survive, the strongest survive the, the weak and the elderly die off and all this kind of stuff and this actually shows the same stuff, things even going further in, in nature a few years ago, where it actually show you the animals killing each other, which was a first, I remember seeing one of the first ones And that, again, was to get it through our our thick heads that uh, we're just uh, just another animal and there's too many of us. And then, of course, the other programs that would augment those kind of programs were the expert talk shows talking about baby boomers coming to age and we just can't cope with it economically and all this kind of stuff. That's why it's all out in the open now, because we've all been brainwashed by osmosis, as they call it, I think it was Huxley and others said that the general public don't really think or reason things out; they simply absorb information and opinions that are given to them by osmosis. When you think about how much bombardment we've had of data our whole lives long, from irregular music shows on radio, and the ads in between, and little comments in between, and the little. Give it in between. We've all been brainwashed in a thousand different ways to accept the fact that everything now is in our face. And most people, unfortunately, do accept it. I've had relatives of mine over the years who watched all these programs and things and say, Yeah, I guess there's just too many of us. And I always say to them, Well, are you going to be the first to go? Will you volunteer? We'll be back with more after this break. Samuel and Watts, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, and I've been discussing how we've all been brainwashed, that the beautiful technique of brainwashing generally means that those who are the victims never know it, that's why it's very successful, and we live in a scientifically indoctrinated age, an age where literally the sciences were developed to do with groups and I've been talking about neuroscience and all the different branches of neuroscience which goes right into genetics by the way and eugenics and how we've all been studied the studies are ongoing most of the studies today on people and the groups they will join are done on chat rooms many people in the chat rooms don't know they're part of big experiments and they break them down into dyads subtypes personality types, and so on. And that's why it's so easy for someone who's put in as an agitator to get the mob going against someone else. These are experiments. And I've had a few of these experiments pulled on me over the years, always from the same group, on one particular forum. I know every single one of them. And so did the police Because lately, I've had threats come from the same group again. This group even had the gall to put up a fake website with my name on it at one point. And you turn to the first page, the first link took you off to someone, I know his real name, called Andrew. And it was an anti-Semitic rant. So that was tried on me before. And now the same character has got the mob all Geared up to try and harass me. So I have to warn you, every single one of you on the website is being monitored by the cops. Because you see, malicious intent and threats are taken seriously. And I take threats against myself and my life and my dog very seriously. So let that be a warning to all of you your own states of locked up paranoia now I hate to even go off in that direction but that's what you get when you start to get known if you're not saying the kind of things they want you to say or you're not agreeing with their particular spin on something they'll come after you that's the mob and most of them as I say are just that they're the mob they don't think and they're easily riled up by someone who knows the techniques so they're the fronts they're disposable at the end of the day getting back to my topic and how everything's in our face today you can't win in this system if you try to fight it by using the system I said that years ago years ago when I was on Jackie show you find that the help that's out there, government help and so on, the agencies, that are supposed to help you for complaints and so on, don't really exist, at least not the way you thought they did, not, not the way it's portrayed on television, when you have a big complaint ab- about something that's affecting you personally, your house, your property, whatever it happens to be, and nothing has changed. And we're in a big mess now because the public are not organized. I was reading an article, in fact, from one of these neuroscientists who said that very thing. He said, the public have no direction. They have no vision as to where they're going. And it's true, only organized, massive organized, educated groups know where they're going. And that's why you can't fight them from a a thousand million different fronts and you can't fight them head on because they always come to compromise and when you compromise you have to step backward one pace and that will be followed by another one down the road that's how it works every country right now is being fleeced to give up its sovereignty and the big purse is being used at the end that's what's happening now why or why would they be pushing ahead with all the Kyoto Treaties and all of the massive amount of money they're going to rip from the public's pockets to pay for it all at a time when we're going in and we are really in a depression we're going into depression pretty fast there's already talk that once Obama gets in there's a second bailout package to be pushed out there and that all comes from the taxpayer as well taxes are going to skyrocket in the US very quickly and don't believe that when we bring things back to what we thought was normal normal never returns again normal is always back in the past somewhere amongst all the other normals that preceded it and when you understand how these people work the game plan and how they work these characters always make a step forward getting us to accept the their particular treaties and then they change it a bit as they go along and we go along with them. This is from the Chicago Tribune. It's to do with Canada's, Canada's forests. Now Canada had all the big forest land down as a carbon sink. What they call a carbon sink where we give off oxygen, etc. and get rid of the CO2 with all of the trees. One-seventh of the world's trees we claimed at the time. They would pay for all the other carbon taxes, for all our energy resources, and so on. And here's from the Chicago Tribune. Canada's forests once a huge help on greenhouse gases now contribute to climate change. Canada's vast forests once huge absorbers of their gases now add to the problem by Howard Witt. Tribune Correspondent, January the 2nd, 2009. Forestry officials in British Columbia used a, a controlled fire to check the spread of a devastating infestation by the mountain pine beetle. That's from Reuters, which i showing shown you, which was 2005. So they're pulling an old photograph. Now, the pine beetle goes up and down like a yo-yo depending on the, the, the seasons that you're in. It depends too if you going through a, a few years of a hot spell or a few years of a cold spell. They die off in the cold spell. We're going through the cold spell now. Because weather is never, ever static. Since Vancouver, as relentlessly bad as the news about global warming seems to be, with ice at the poles, again they're using the old data, with ice at the poles melting faster than scientists had predicted and world temperatures rising higher than expected, there was at least a reservoir of hope stored here in Canada's vast forests. The country's 1.2 million square miles of trees have been dubbed the lungs of the planet. So, once again, to get a picture in your mind so you can identify with something. Lungs of the planet by ecologists because they account for more than 7% of Earth's total forest lands. They could always be depended upon to suck in vast quantities of carbon dioxide, naturally cleansing the world of much of the harmful heat trapping gas. Which, again, is all BS because. Because carbon dioxide is a natural component of our atmosphere. It says to you, but not anymore. In an alarming, yet little notice of recent studies, recent studies, mind you, scientists have concluded that Canada's precious forests, stressed from damage caused by global warming, insect infestations and persistent fires, have crossed an ominous line and are now pumping out more climate-changing carbon dioxide than they are sequestering. It says here, Worse yet, the experts predict that Canada's forests will remain net carbon sources as opposed to carbon storage sinks until at least 2022 and possibly much longer. So now Canada, it means that Canada's going to have to pay more money out for having all these trees, which they claim now are a danger. There's no pleasing these guys. I mean, you can't, can you? I mean, they can turn out as much bogus science as they want forever. We are seeing a significant distortion of the natural trend, said Werner Kurtz, senior research scientist at the Canadian Forest Service and a leading expert on carbon cycles in the nation's forests. Since 1999, and especially in the last five years, the forests have shifted from being a carbon sink to a carbon source. Translation. This is, again, the use of picture you can sort of identify with. Earth's lungs have come down with emphysema. Canada's forests are no longer our friends, so the trees now are bad guys. So serious is the problem that Canada's federal government effectively wrote off the nation's forests in 2007 as officials substituted their plans to abide by the International Kyoto Protocol, which obligates participating governments to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. So we've, we've written that off. It means we're to pay for it now. Under the Kyoto Agreement, Governments are permitted to count forest lands as credits or offsets when calculating their national carbon emissions. The Canadian officials, aware of the scientific studies showing that their forests actually are emitting excess carbon, quietly omitted the forest lands from the Kyoto compliance calculations. The force cast analysis prepared for the government indicates there is a probability that forests would constitute a net source of greenhouse gas emissions, a Canadian Environment Ministry spokesman told the Montreal Gazette. Canadian officials say global warming is causing the crisis in their forests. Inexorably, rising temperatures are slowly drying up forest lands, leaving trees more susceptible to fires, which release huge amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Well, guess who's been setting most of the fires It's the Forestry Commission. And that's been on all the papers. We did them in British Columbia a few years ago, and they wiped out whole towns, lumbering towns and everything. And then it turned out, about two years later, they admitted that they started the fires and they got out of control. But that's holy smoke. When you put all that smoke in the atmosphere, it's holy smoke when government does it. When you do it, as bad. sit back with more after this break. side than they're, they're taking in. This is what they're telling us now. And of course they're still using the old data that we're going through our global warming cycle when we're actually going through a cooling cycle and have been for a few years. But what's the facts got to do with an agenda? It says bitter cold Canadian winters used to kill off much of the pine beetle population each year, naturally keeping it in check, but the milder winters of recent years, I don't know where they're getting this from, have allowed the insect to proliferate. That's what's causing some of our forests to switch from a carbon sink position to a source position, said Jim Schnetzinger, British Columbia's chief forester. Once those infested trees are killed by the pine beetle, they're no longer sequestering carbon. They're giving it off. Schnetzinger noted that eventually, over the course of a generation, some of the dying forests will begin to regenerate and once again begin storing more carbon than they release. But the foreseeable future, they say, their models, they're using computer models again, which always give them the answers they want. So that Canada's forests will stay stuck in a vicious global warming cycle, even though we're in global cooling. Again, but what does the facts matter here? Both succumbing to the effects of climate change and as they decay and release more carbon, helping to accelerate it. So that's starting a whole new debate over commercial logging, which is one of the Canada's biggest industries. Then the environmentalists are all jumping on top of it, too. And everyone's getting in on the act of this shenanigan, as I call it. Because that's what it is. It's a shenanigan. Now, years ago, and since then, I've been talking about the United Nations and how it was set up to be a big front organization. For all of this agenda to bring in the world system, H.G. Wells wrote about it in the Open Conspiracy. He wrote about it too, once he started off the League of Nations. He said, now we can bypass elected politicians and literally bureaucrats and agencies within bureaucrats will will basically talk to other bureaucrats at the United Nations and bypass the political process altogether. Well, that's, that's happened And that became, of course, the United Nations. And remember who funded the United Nations into existence? The Rockefellers put up the land that it was built on in New York. And they were the heads of the American Eugenics Society and had laws set out at that time, which they pushed and got into effect, where they were sterilizing what they called the feeble-minded and just the wrong types by law I also mentioned that the United Nations with its Department for Food and Agriculture have eventually the the mandate to handle all of the world's food supply and they will dish it out proportion it out to the different nations or states as they like to call them or regions and the whole idea is that you don't get an increase if your population increases. In fact, it will decrease. It will decrease because they'll tell you this is the limit. And a few years later, they'll say, well, to drop the limit, we don't have enough food. And it's up to each country then to find a way to basically eliminate so much of the population that's in the program. Read it up for yourselves. Read the history of it up for yourselves too. It's a lot of work. This is from the, the Mail Online and it's January the 5th, 2009. Britain must set population limits to safeguard national security, say experts. The experts again. By Daily Mail reporter. Says you. Britain must set a maximum population level if it is to avoid destroying the environment. So here's the environment coming into it. And putting national security at risk, say experts. Now listen. The Optimum Population Trust, very important organisation, is not based just in Britain, they now have them all over, in every country. So the Optimum Population Trust has written to ministers calling for a policy of zero net migration, matching numbers allowed into Britain each year to numbers leaving. But it goes beyond that, because when Margaret Thatcher was in as a Prime Minister, she said she had to open the doors to immigration, wide open, because... The people had obeyed their government's instructions and been very good and had their 1.2 children, etc. And she said there weren't enough children getting born to pay off the national debt. That was the reason for opening the doors to massive immigration. It says here the UK's population is projected to increase, and again this is the UN with its scare tattering, it's it's, it's always fear-mongering with its statistics and so on, to increase from 60 to 70 million over the next 20 years and to 85 million by 2081. Now that would only happen with massive immigration because the populations there are drastically declining according to the other set of figures you get from the United Nations and from Britain itself. Experts are demanding a royal commission to establish an environmentally sustainable level (laughs) human sustainability, an environmentally sustainable level of population. The trust so a Foundation, a panel of academics and environmentalists says achieving zero net migration would cut Britain's population in two thousand eighty-one to fifty-seven million. Mass immigration feeds through into rising greenhouse gas emissions and more congestion, the experts say. These unnamed experts. I'll be back with more of this after this break to tie it in with the, the previous article. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network, because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, and I'm tying different articles together to show you the pattern, how it all works together to shape our minds. Because before I I mentioned an article about sustainable development and I mentioned too how the United Nations would eventually dish out the food to the countries. That was always its mandate when it was set up. And this article here, which is from the Mail Online, I'm talking about, it's it's actually from the, the population trust, optimum population trust they call themselves. It says here, the trust, a panel of academics and environmentalists says achieving zero net migration would cut Britain's population to 2000, in 2081 to 57 million. Mass immigration feeds through into rising greenhouse gas emissions and more congestion, the experts say. But then he goes on to the other kicker that ties in, you see. The Trust warns that because Britain can produce only 30% of the food, energy, and other goods that it needs, it will become increasingly vulnerable to resource nationalism as foreign powers hoard their scarce resources. This is all leading to who's going to dish out the food. And Britain's been whacked just as much as every other Western country by the government putting the farmers out of business in collusion with the bankers in order that the big agri-food businesses can basically run the world's food supply. This imperils future national security. So it's national security is coming into Remember what Kissinger said in that document that he signed in collusion with Britain in 1974 that overpopulation was the number one enemy of the state. And then a whole bunch of programs went into effect right away. They even had a list of countries they want to bring the populations down on by all means possible. And you can find it. I have it here, in fact. It says, this imperils future national security, as well as destroying the environment. The Trust is demanding a royal commission, that's a government commission, to establish an environmentally sustainable level of population. Now there you go. It's right there. A royal commission to establish an environmentally sustainable level of population. And you know, if the public accept this, which they will, they'll sort of dream through this, then there'll be another report in a year's time that that didn't go far enough. bring it down even lower, the numbers down lower. The Home Office said its new points-based immigration system would help manage uh, immigration, which will contribute to future population projects or projections and control. So that's from the mail online. Now, who is the Optimum Population Trust? What is it? It says here on their own website. It says the Optimum Population Trust is a leading think tank in the UK concerned with the impact of population growth on the environment. OPT, as it calls itself, research covers population in relation to climate change, energy, resources, biodiversity. As your Maurice Strong's one again. Development impacts ageing and employment and other environmental and economic issues. Aging's is in there, remember, ageing. <laughs> we don't like children, and they don't like the very old. That's obvious. It campaigns for stabilization and gradual population decrease globally. And in the UK, OPT is a registered charity. It's a registered charity, and it's financed by its members... It receives funding neither from the government uh-huh, nor from any political or business interest, and, and these big foundations are always classed as non-political. In fact, if you look into to any of the books put out by the Council on Foreign Relations or the Royal Institute of International Affairs, they'll always tell you on the front page, this is a non-political organization. And they're telling the truth. They don't play politics. They make agendas, and they tell governments what to do. So they don't play politics. It says, they're not affiliated with any other organization except as a partner in the global footprint network. Look that one up for a radical. It says, main aims to advance the education of the public in issues relating to human population worldwide and its impact on environmental sustainability, to advance, promote and encourage research to determine optimum And ecologically sustainable human population levels, there you go, right there, that's exactly from the United Nations, in all or any part or parts of the world, and to publicise the results of such research. To advance environmental protection by promoting policies in the United Kingdom or any other part or parts of the world which will lead or contribute to the achievement of stable human population levels which allow environmental sustainability. Well, we've all seen Georgia Guidestones. We know what their figures eventually have to be reduced down to over a long period of time. And who are the patrons of this? Who are the patrons? Professor Sir Partha Duskupta, Frank Ramsey, Professor of Economics, University of Cambridge. We've heard to this one, Professor Paul Ehrlich, Professor of Population Studies, Stanford University. Did you know that Jane Goodall was in it? Jane Goodall, founder, Jane Goodall Institute and UN Messenger of Peace, United Nations Messenger of Peace. It has other ones, Susan Hampshire, actress, Professor John Gillibaud, Professor Co-Chair of OPT, Emeritus Professor of Family Planning and Reproductive Health that's Abortions, University College London, former Medical Director Margaret Pike Centre for Family Planning Abortion Clinics. Professor Aubrey Manning, OBE, Emeritus Professor of Natural History, University of Edinburgh. Professor Norman Myers, CMG, visiting fellow Green College, Oxford University, and at universities of Harvard, Cornell, Stanford, California, Michigan, and Texas. They get around these guys, don't they? Sarah Parkin, OBE, Founder, Director, and Trustee of Forum for the Future. is another one. See, they all tie in together. There's, There's hundreds of them, all working together and Director of the National Environment Research Council and the Leadership Foundation for Higher Education and Head Teachers into Industry. Jonathan Porritt, CBE Founder, Director of Forum for the Future and Chairman of the UK Sustainable Development Commission. These all sound awful, awful like they work for government, but these are all private organisations that tell governments what to do. See, this is the real democracy. They tell governments what to do. They're big segments of society. Well funded. Massive lobby groups. And here's a kicker. This is this is a winner, a sweetheart, this guy. Sir Crispin Tickle. G C M G K C V O Chancellor of Kent University, Director of the Policy Foresight Program at the James Martin Institute and former UK, United Kingdom Permanent Representative on the United Nations Security Council that was by the government. So the government is is completely immersed with this stuff. And Tickle, if you you read, read his different speeches, he's no laughing matter. There's another one that adds right into this, too. I'll I'll do tickle in a little minute if I can find them. It says, Poll of International Experts by the Independent. This is from the Independent. January the 2nd of, yeah, 2009. Poll of International Experts by Independent reveals its consensus that CO2 cuts have failed. Listen to this. And the growing support for technological intervention. You see, the global warming's fallen flat in its face, so they're falling back on CO2. By Steve Connor, science editor, and Chris Green. An emergency plan B using the latest technologies needed to save the world from dangerous climate change, according to a poll of leading scientists. You know, you know the polls were first carried out by the Tavistock Institute during World War One, Because they found was they couldn't get enough guys to join the, and go off and get killed in the war, which they didn't understand anyway and so they, they, they put up massive campaigns on to do polling, and they gave all these fake statistics out, knowing that the mass of people will go along with what they think is the majority opinion that that's a fact that unfortunately people do, and that's what they used for the polls, so any poll is very very suspicious. It says, the collective international failure to curb the growing emissions of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has meant that an alternate to merely curbing emissions may become necessary. The plan would involve highly controversial proposals to lower global temperatures artificially through daringly ambitious schemes that either reduce sunlight levels by man made means or take CO2 out of the air. This geoengineering approach including schemes such as fertilizing the oceans with iron to stimulate algal blooms, would have been dismissed as a distraction a few years ago, but it's now being seen as the majority of scientists, or by them, uh, we surveyed, as a viable emergency backup for a plan that could save the planet from the worst effects of climate change, from the weather, you know, at least until deep cuts are made in CO2 emissions. Uh, they also talk about seeding the planet with with, again the metallic particles in the air and even sulfur isn't it amazing bringing this out now when they've already been doing that for over 10 years worldwide in some parts daily such as here where I live it says here what is worried many of the experts who include recognized authorities from the world's leading universities and research institutes as well as Nobel laureate is the failure to curb global greenhouse gas emissions through international agreements namely the Kyoto Treaty and recent studies indicating that the Earth's natural carbon sinks are becoming less efficient at absorbing man-made CO2 from man-made CO2 from the atmosphere. Levels of CO2 have continued to increase during the past decade since the treaty was agreed and they are now rising faster than even the worst case scenarios from the intergovernmental panel on climate change. That's all these these hired whore scientists that are getting their paychecks on this, that are lifelong if they can keep it going, and turn out all these false studies from their specially made computers that gives them all the things they want to hear. In the meantime, the natural absorption of CO2 by the world's forests and oceans has decreased significantly. So here they are talking about doing all these weird things to to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Massive things. Now, you know yourself, as I say, they've been spraying the skies for donkeys years now. And it's had its toll on the effects, the physical effects uh, on on humans. There's never been a a time when there's so much bronchial problems, ever. In a time when all our industry is gone, that they're not sitting pushing smoke out of big chimneys. The industry's all off in China. And they're still harping on about too much pollution, but they've changed it now to CO2, something that's an invisible gas that's always there naturally. But they won't stop, as I say, until they've got what they want. And unfortunately, they, being the biggest organizations, with uh, a ready-willing media to take them up on it, uh, will never ever get to the complete truth on anything going back to Mr. Crispin this this beautiful sweetheart that says no laughing matter or or Tickle his name is Sir Crispin Tickle he says this is from an old document that gives you an idea of who he is from the 7th of September 1991 talking point what we must do to save the planet he's been on the go for a long time with this you see getting well paid for it the world faces a growing list of problems, overpopulation, dwindling resources, environmental degradation, industrial pollution, that's before all the industry went totally, ozone depletion, global warming, and the rest. It is already too late to avert them, but we can still mitigate some of their effects and prepare ourselves for a different sort of world. Again, change is good, right? Over the last 20 years, there's been some progress towards this goal. A remarkable change in public awareness, that's all we've had, is propaganda. Has led individuals, groups, governments, and international bodies in their different ways to take the first steps towards wisdom. These are to recognise that these problems exist, and to—I should say—believe. Should, should insert "believe" in there because it's a belief system, and to begin in piecemeal fashion to do something about them. But in relation to the size and scope of the issues, we have hardly started. We're still at the beginning of the beginning, and must learn not only to behave differently but to think differently. The most difficult of all is requires us to abandon assumptions, change habits, create new models of thought, accept different values, and see the world through other eyes. What we're talking about, we've already seen through their eyes, you see, and think the way they do. That's what they mean by changing uh, consciousness, public awareness. To change our way of thinking, we first need to recast our vocabulary. That's what they do. They use psycholinguistics and use slogans. Words are the building bricks of thought. The instruments of economic analysis are blunt and rusty. Terms such as growth, development, cost-benefit analysis, and even gross national product have, become, have come to be misleading. They are more than ripe for redefinition. Secondly, we need to realize that conventional wisdom is sometimes a contradiction in terms. Some trends, for example, the consumption of non-renewable resources point in the wrong direction, but as the French writer René Dubois, Dubois said, uh, said Wherever human beings are concerned, the trend is not destiny. Nothing is inevitable unless we make it so. So they want to make that kind of like that, how we worded it, make it so. That's what they say at the end of some of the occult ceremonies. And then there is a the need to change our culture. The division between the cultures of science and, and the arts is rightly decried. But neither culture is now in charge. They want, see, they want the scientists to be in charge. Our real bosses are the business managers. Even two centuries ago, Edmund Burke feared that the age of sophisters, economists, and calculators had come. Our problem is that calculations are usually short-term. Finally, we need a value system which enshrines the principle of sustainable development. This is not a recent term. This is 1991. The concept can mean different things to different people, but the idea behind it is simple. You must devise models for a relatively steady state society. So there you are, from 91 two thousand and nine from that Ottoman trust. I've just read, he's the same character running the whole thing, never changing. One iota. It says, in which population size and broad balance in broad balance with the availability of resources. Now who is this character at all, this William, this, uh, this Crispin Tickle. At that time, Sir Crispin Tickle as warden of Green College, Oxford, and was, until recently, British Ambassador to the United Nations. This article is based on an address delivered to last week's meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science. That's from issue 1785 of New Scientist magazine, 7th of September 1991, page 16. So, you can see, you can see how... They've been at this for a long, long time. And we've all read so many articles, and, or at least headliners, and had little bits on television, bits and bites, because that's how we learn today, some bits and bytes. And we're all prepared for them coming out in the open to direct and order our lives for us. I'll be back with more after this break. Alan Watt, Cutting Through the Matrix. And this one last article I want to touch on here. It goes into the same topic. Because we've been in a war and most of us never, ever knew it. We simply grew up within it, thinking everything is quite natural. If your parents don't want to warn you, it won't dawn on you if there's anything wrong. Uh, this is from Truthdig. It's called Truth Truthdig. book review by Tony Platt on American eugenics posted June 20, 20th 2008 it says in 1942 US Supreme Court case of Skinner versus Oklahoma is remembered for protecting the right to have offspring we forget what that this has all been done before the right to have, people have to fight for the right to have offspring and, and by implication the right not to have offspring Skinner according to Victoria Nurse the author of an important new book on American eugenics, typically sits in the shadow of the abortion and gay marriage debates. In Reckless Hands, Skinner v. Oklahoma and the Near Triumph of American Eugenics demonstrates that Skinner also opens a window into a little-known chapter of American eugenics, how prisoners at a hard scrabble prison in Oklahoma, in the aftermath of the Great Depression, led a sophisticated struggle to limit the practice of compulsory sterilization in the United States. Now, most people in the prisons in the 1920s were in there for stealing food, believe it or not, because there was no work anywhere. Everybody literally lost the farm. This is much has been written about the history of eugenics, but until publication of this book, we knew little about how eugenic sterilization was used in prisons, and against men and even less about the views of his targeted victims. It's a lively tale, well told, until the author, a law professor at Emory University, tries her hand at historical generalizations. At the core of eugenics was a belief in a central role of hereditary in both determining and explaining social inequality not only totally with a poverty gene, also called a criminal gene. Influenced by 19th century developments in genetics, medicine and public health, Eugenics was not a crack science. At the height of its influence, support came from some unlikely ideological bedfellows. It was endorsed by the Fabian socialists in England and racial scientists in Germany linked to birth control and progressive economic reforms in Denmark and to racial policies against itinerant gypsies in Sweden, an expression of fascist ideology in Germany, in Argentina and of cultural hybridity in Mexico and closely associated with the sterilization of those defined as feeble-minded in Germany, the United States, Sweden, and Denmark. And by the way, it was funded by the Rockefeller Foundation primarily in the United States, the same Rockefeller Foundation that's leading the charge for the global society, the specific depopulated global society. In the 1930s, Nazi Germany made eugenics an official state policy, first openly sterilizing hundreds of thousands of women, then secretly murdering many of its disabled and mentally ill patients who were leading lives deemed unworthy of life. Until the onset of World War II, when selective murder turned into organized butchery, Nazi racial scientists were appreciated around the world, and that's true. Adolf Hitler was time-life man in the year twice in the 1930s. It says he was appreciated, especially in the United States, where eugenics was dominated by right-wing hardliners. And I can hear the music coming in, so I'm afraid that's the, a, a very fast show, just zoomed in there. But it's a very good article to read, and I'll put the link up on my site after the show. From Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your God's go with you.